I'm going to start with a question, okay? Now, as Bible-believing, Reformed, Evangelical, whatever word we wanted to use as believers, we realize, or we believe that at conversion, we come back into a relationship with God, and that sanctification should be restoring our relationship with the Lord. So I want to ask you this question. If the Lord was here and knew you in the flesh, and you were actually friends. Remember, the father of our faith, Abraham, it was said he was a friend of God. Okay? So if you were friends with the Lord, I want to ask you, how would he experience you as a friend? The relationship you have with him from day to day, if he was here, what would that be like? How do you relate to him here and now? I'll give you a couple options. Let's say you relate to him. Uh, I won't talk much about this, but my prior career before I got into this, I was in the Merchant Marine. And if you were on a sea and ship, every once in a while you would pass another ship at night, and you'd always see a dark silhouette from the moon of the ship, and I would wonder, what's going on in there? And I wonder if that's how the Lord might experience you as a friend. That he just sees the outlines, but he doesn't see and experience your heart. Okay? Another option might be, the Lord experiences me like a cocktail party acquaintance. I'm dressed up, I look nice, we talk about the weather, but nothing really meaningful or deep. Or, does the Lord experience me as a friend? Maybe even a high school friend. We laugh, we fight, we know the depths of each other. Um, we're friends. I want you to think about that as I talk because the opposite of love is indifference, okay? When we love somebody, we're not indifferent to them. In fact, C.S. Lewis says, if you love anybody, your heart will be broken. And the scriptures say, I'd rather you be hot or cold. Oftentimes, what comes with real love is tension or friction. The opposite of love is indifference. Meaning, I don't feel, the person doesn't exist for me. And oftentimes, because we act like the ship at night or the cocktail party acquaintance, because we're really not honest with the Lord in how we relate to Him, we end up settling into a relationship of indifference that doesn't have a lot of texture and meaning in life. So I'm going to use um, Psalm 62 to help us think about this. If you have a workbook, you can turn to page one. Now I start with a passage from Peter at the top of page one, 1 Peter 5. It says this, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. For those verses are written to a church that was going through persecution. Okay? Now, if you're in persecution, what would you want your apostle to write to you? Something like, Hold on, another second longer, it's about to be over, right? If you're in persecution, don't you want to hear it's about to be over, you're going to be delivered? What you don't want to hear is this. 
Uh, that humility that's coming from being under persecution, that's kind of a good thing. Live into that, accept that. Do you realize that that's what Peter's saying to these people in persecution? He's saying, when we're in difficulty, oftentimes we encounter an unusual humility. That humility is actually good. Now, what I believe the scriptures teach is that we don't choose the Lord because he's a good idea. We choose the Lord oftentimes as a last resort or because we have to, because we need him. Now, all of us know that when we go through difficulty at times, that maybe we pray a little bit more and maybe we read a little bit more. I, my undergrad was at the U.S. Virgin Marine Academy. Probably none of you have heard of it, but we had a Protestant chapel on campus, so most of the believers went to the Protestant chapel. And do you know the Sunday before his finals week, that was always a lot more full, okay? Because people were looking for a miracle. They were intentioned, and now they wanted to be closer to the Lord, okay? If we have a sinful or a fleshly nature in us, and there's a world outside of us, and both of those things are pushing us away from the Lord, then it's actually a battle or a work or a fight oftentimes to grow closer to the Lord. Resist the devil, submit therefore to God, okay? I want you to try to believe that something inside of us and something outside of us actually pushes us away from the Lord. And oftentimes when we experience difficulty, that's when we draw closer to the Lord. C.S. Lewis said it this way, Now God who has made us knows what we are and that our happiness lies in Him. Yet we will not seek it in him as long as he leave us, leaves us any other resort where it can even be plausibly looked for. While what we call our own life remains agreeable, we will not surrender it to him. Let me implore the reader to try to believe, if only for the moment, that God, who made these desiring people, may really be right when he thinks that their modest prosperity and the happiness of their children are not enough to make them blessed that all this must fall from them in the end, and that if they have not learned to know him, they will be wretched. And therefore he troubles them, warning them in advance of an insufficiency that one day they will have to discover. The life to themselves and their family stands between them and the recognition of their need. Therefore he makes that life less sweet to them. Now listen to this, I call that a divine humility because it's a poor thing to strike our colors to God when the ship is going down under us. A poor thing to come to him as a last resort, to offer up our own when it is no longer worth keeping. If God were proud, he would hardly have us on such terms. But he is not proud, he stoops to conquer. Those students who were showing up to the chapel before finals week, God welcomed them. When you have difficulty and your heart turns to the Lord, he's different than anybody you know. He doesn't cross his arms and say, where were you last week or yesterday or the day before? Whenever your heart is open and moving towards him, he welcomes that. And he's 100% different than anybody we know. Because the people in our life, oftentimes, have a hard time being with us when we're in good spaces, much less when maybe we haven't treated them well and we're only coming to them at a difficulty.
So I want you to see in the passage I read from Peter, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. But here's what's going on. If you are in difficulty and it's not going to stop, what happens is anxieties come up. The way the Lord uses difficulty, if you remember in Romans 8, it says he subjected the world to futility and hope. God cursed the world. See, he gave Adam and Eve the opportunity to believe him, and they did. They sinned. So then God cursed them. He redesigned the world, or us. He made it different. There was fallenness. So now we were going to have difficulty that we were going to have an opportunity to turn to him again and again and again. So if you are like the people in the church that Peter was writing to and you're in difficulty and he says, lean into that, accept that, grow a little more humility, he also says this, cast all your anxieties upon him. That word, cast, that verb I have there, is the same verb used in Luke 19.35. And they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt. Cast means throwing. You know, this is what's so true about the humility of the Lord. If you're in difficulty and you need someone to talk to because you're not happy about it or you're confused about it, guess who will listen? Guess who will bow down and welcome whatever it is you need to talk to them about? I'll give you a little simple example. This is my oldest daughter when she was four years old and she had a stuffed cat that she loved. Whenever we would go to like a souvenir place, she would want to get ceramic cats. She loved cats, so we thought, we'll get her a cat. So we get her a cat. And she names the cat JC, short for Jesus Christ. <laughs> and she gets really attached to this cat. And the cat begins sleeping with her, and three weeks in, she starts waking up with a rash. And you know what we realize? She's allergic to cats. So we had to let JC go, and in our family, I'm a counselor, one of the things we do well is, what I'm trying to teach you this weekend, is we groan and grieve and lament. We're okay not being happy, right? So we pray that night, and this is Amy's prayer. Lord, I thank you for this, I thank you for that, and I thank you for this, but I don't thank you for making me allergic to JC. I'm mad at you that I'm allergic to JC. You know how our dad prayed? Lord, I thank you for this and I thank you for that. I don't thank you for making Amy allergic to JC. I'm confused for What I wanted to teach my daughter was that he would welcome her when she has confusion. And I feel like this is one of the biggest issues with the evangelical church. We don't know how to handle the darker emotions. Jealousy, covetousness, anger, sorrow. I was teaching on lamenting, which I'm doing this morning. And during the Q&A, Q one of the ladies raised her hand and said, well, what about where it says pray for your enemies? Because I talked about being honest about when you have enemies. And I said, well, here's what we do. We believe that, that we should pray for our enemies. And I, I knew this woman had young children. And I said, so imagine your daughter comes home the third day in a row and talks about this other classmate who, who's bullying her. And each day you just say, we have to love her and we 
pray for her and we just pray God bless her. And I believe you're stepping over some emotions and just being positive in a very false way. And what if you were instead to pray, this is really hard and we're disappointed and this is not nice and right now I don't like this girl. And you pray that way for two days and three days and maybe three weeks. And at the end of three weeks, your heart is softened because you've continued to be honest with the Lord about what's going on in your heart. And He changes your heart. It doesn't happen by your self-reliance or putting pressure on yourself. It happens as a response to the Lord listening to what was in your heart for three weeks. And then you're praying because the Holy Spirit worked inside of you. Lord, help this child. Lord, be with this child. Lord, love this child. Lamenting is a process. I want you to see it scripturally. I have Psalm 62 here, okay? And if you turn to page 2, I'm going to read a couple notes about Psalm 62, and then we're going to come back to it. If you look down towards the bottom of your page, it says Psalms are musical poems, Okay? They were commonly used as worship aids by the Israelites when they brought sacrifices to the temple in Jerusalem. Eventually, they were used beyond temple worship in everyday life because their wordings expressed the people's attitudes and experiences. You guys get to experience this because you sing, sing things in church that you can play on Spotify, and they carry you through the week. You get connected to those songs because they help connect with the themes that are in your heart, okay? Now, there, were, there are four types of psalms in the Psalter. There are declarative praise, where we thank God for what he's done. Descriptive praise, like a hymn about his character. A didactic psalm, where we teach something in the psalm. Or a lament psalm. It's a psalm of disorientation, expressing confusion, disappointment. Out of the 150 psalms, 60 of them are laments. Almost half of the psalms are psalms of disorientation. Now, Psalm 62 that we're going to look at is a teaching psalm. It's a didactic psalm. It teaches us something. So, sorry, but flip back to page one, okay? I'm going to read verse one. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Now let's compare that to verse 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. You see, they're almost the same verses. For God alone, my soul, waits in silence, from, myself, from him comes my salvation. Verse 5, for God alone, my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is in him. So it goes from waits in silence, my soul waits in silence, to saying, oh, my soul, wait in silence. And it goes from him comes my salvation to from my hope is in him. Do you see a little bit of change there? Now let's look at verse 2 and verse 6. For he alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. It's verse 2. Let's look at verse 6. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. So it goes from he alone is my rock and my salvation to he only is my rock and my salvation. 
And it goes from, I shall not be greatly shaken, to I shall not be shaken. There's a difference between verses 1 and 2 and verses 5 and 6. This is called synonymous parallelism. If you're a literature person, there's, I'm, I'm not a literature person, but I know there's like, I can't even remember the words, but there's poetic devices that people use to construct poems. This is a poetic device. The difference between verses 1 and 2 and verses 5 and 6 highlights something. Verses 1 and 2 are more theological statements, statements he's just making outward, right? My salvation comes from him. My hope is in him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He alone is my rock, my salvation. I will not be greatly shaken. I shall not be shaken. The difference is a kind of a theoretical, a theological statement to something the psalmist has taken ownership of. Something has happened between verses 1 and 2 and verses 5 and 6. Now, the outline that I give you here is actually what you would find in any conservative commentary. It starts out as a confession of trust. I'm confessing that I want to trust God. What comes next is a complaint. Here's what's between verses 3 and 4. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. What's between a more theoretical or theological statement, verses 1 and 2, and a personal statement, having taken ownership of that theology, is a complaint. Now this is a didactic psalm. The psalmist is trying to teach you something. I believe something about God, then I complained, and I experienced something about God that changed the way I believed. Okay? And this is his, if you turn over to, page, to verse 8 on the next page, this is a resolution. He goes from kind of talking outwardly to a declaration. And then there's a pause. And he says, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Now guys, that word pour is not like have a little glass and pour a pitcher of water into it. Pour is like this. Empty the contents out. Now this is the Old Testament. And just so we don't think this was relegated to the Old Testament, Remember the verse I read from 1 Peter, cast all your anxieties, throw all your anxieties on the Lord. So let's pause. This psalm, this teaching psalm, what he's saying is, I believe something about God. And what I did over here in these 60 laments, these psalms that are full of lament, I experienced something about God that I want to teach you here. You know something about God, you relate more honestly to Him, and you experience something about God that gives you this conclusion. You can pour out whatever's in your heart to Him. And I want you to look at His praise at the end of the psalm. This is again on page 2. I want you to look at verses 11 and 12. It says this, Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Here's what he's saying. Lord, you are strong, and God, you are kind. When it says, um, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, it's a reference that 
uh, to an oracle of God, that something they were saying day in and day out, something that occurred in the synagogue. So, so um, like churches today, they might be popular to say, God is good, and everyone says, God is good all the time. We say this somewhat repeatedly to get inside of us. Well, this thing that he's about to quote, that power belongs to you, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, was something they were reciting day in and day out. And here's what he's saying. What I realized through lamenting, God, is that you are really strong and that you are really kind. So let me um, pause and help you connect with it a little bit more. Because I think as believers, first of all, it's hard to complain in general because oftentimes we're reinforcing that we should be happy. And I'm going to talk tomorrow about joy. Happiness is an American construct. Joy, biblical joy, comes way after you've learned to do sorrow well. In this world, we have both. We all, and I'll talk about this tomorrow. We often push happiness away. I mean, push pain away and just try to make ourselves happy. That's not being joy. As we learn to have pain and we find God's work in our heart that brings joy, our hearts are much more enlarged to be able to receive real joy. We'll talk about that tomorrow. What I want you to think about, oftentimes in our communities, we don't talk well about difficulty. We don't grieve, groan, and lament well. So I didn't grow up in an evangelical home. I actually grew up in a Roman Catholic home in Northeast, uh, in the Northeast in New Jersey. And um, Catholicism is, um, in the Northeast, is very cultural and very religious and very pull yourself up by your bootstraps. So I kind of used God moralistically to help me be a good person and pretty much I felt pressure to get my life together and please the Lord. And in the pain of my growing up, I denied all that pain and I'm a deeply feeling person and there was some unusual pain in my family of origin that made the pain even worse. And what I did was, I'm gonna be good, I'm gonna please God, I'm gonna be happy, and I didn't talk about anything sad. And all my effort underneath was this, because y'all, when we're growing up, and we're vulnerable, and I want you to realize, evil, evil one's the opposite of God. When we're vulnerable, he kicks us, and he bullies us, okay? I worked in social services in Colorado, and I worked in a home where kids had been removed from their home or from a foster home and came and lived in this group home. And I worked with kids who were removed from their home because they were abused and that got put in a foster home and were abused. Evil is the opposite of God. He has no mercy. So in the vulnerability of our youth, in whatever pain we go through, oftentimes the evil one whispers and says, make your life work on your own. Figure out how to be happy. What I couldn't tell myself at 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 15 was, there's a level of chaos around you, and the people aren't really paying attention to your heart and helping you with it. So all you really had at the end of the day is the Lord, trust Him and fight all the lies in your heart. That's not what I was hearing. What I was hearing was work really hard at academics, work really hard at sports. I was a doer, and so I did a lot to make um, everyone around me pleased and try to make myself happy. In New Jersey, there's really no middle school, so you go K through eight. And in eighth grade, I um, 
was second in my class, captain of the football team, leading rusher, captain of the basketball team, leading scorer, undefeated in track. I was president of the student council and captain of the safety patrol. I even got voted best dressed, which was a crime, because I definitely wasn't best dressed, okay? And I thought that I was on my way to happiness. And I didn't realize that I was self-righteous and proud. And one of the deepest things I told myself was one day, I'm gonna be in a happy marriage and in a happy family. And then I got married. And I don't know about you, but marriage has some difficulty, oftentimes that you can't run away from, okay? Now my marriage had garden variety pain. But you know what it felt like? That pain that I had run away from, that I told myself I was good enough to overcome and I was never going to experience again. And my self-righteousness came out. And it was a little bit like, Lord, how dare you? I worked really hard to be a good person so that I would have a good marriage and that there would not be an ounce of difficulty. And because I hadn't been raised an evangelical, I didn't really know that you were supposed to be really nice to God when you prayed. I didn't know that. And so I lamented and I complained. And all my disorientation I poured out on the Lord. And that's when he became my father. He didn't back away from that pain. He loved me through it. And that's what softened me and changed me. What I want to create for you today is just a category that the Lord welcomes your laments, your complaints. No, we all go through difficulty and what we tell ourselves is we deserve it or it's our fault or if I try harder, the difficulty will go away. Why then does it say in Peter, don't be surprised at this fiery ordeal that has found you as something, as if something strange is happening to you. And guys, we can talk about, I believe just marriage and children leaves enough room for difficulty, okay? All right? Work, school. Like some of, some of you will like, oh, I'll go to Auburn and be an engineer, and then you get an engineering program and there's a lot of stress. Of course, that's difficulty, all right? There's tons of difficulty that we experience that has nothing to do with wrong behavior. But we tell ourselves, because we listen to a lie inside of us, that this wouldn't feel difficult if you would just try harder instead of that difficulty is there to help you see things about yourself that you never recognized. Don't you understand? That's the beauty in trials. Trials bring, the heat of the trials bring to the surface impurities that you don't want to see every day. So again, I'll give you another example. My wife was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2000. And uh, the doctor, uh, when we went for her, she, she had her exam and then we went for the follow-up and he said, you both need to come, so we figured it wasn't good news. And after he told us that my wife had cancer, he said, you're probably not going to hear anything else I say. And he was right, because I'm in a shock. Okay. About six weeks later, my wife had a nine-hour surgery uh, and a partial mastectomy. And the week after she was um, operated on, I took the week off. And I was on a church staff. And I came home from work one day, and uh, someone was cutting my lawn. 
Someone was cooking meals, someone was watching our kids. And all I could do was sit and be with my wife. And because she had went through surgery and was really vulnerable, what I began to see, and we had three young kids, they were four, six, and two. And I was working on my doctorate and I was on a church staff. And I was pretty uptight and I don't think I was really kind to live with. And in the beauty of that pain, I saw how arrogant and proud and selfish I was. In that trial, I saw things about my heart that you really don't usually want to think about. And I prayed better this prayer, Lord, have mercy Okay? Our trials, our difficulties, the struggles we go through, oftentimes, we, oh, if I just would do this, it wouldn't happen. Or let me try to get out of this. And what we don't do is, Lord, help us see the things we often don't want to see about ourselves. That we're self-righteous, or we're closed, or we're dishonest, okay? Difficulty brings up emotions that if we bring them to the Lord and we pray more honestly. One of the things I'm really grateful about that I did pray more honestly with the Lord is He got a lot of the anger and the self-righteousness that I would have given to my wife if I didn't know I could be honest with him. Okay? So let's turn back to your um, workbooks. Okay. The top of page three, I say this. What is lamenting? And there's a difference between lamenting and grumbling that I'm going to define. Lamenting is not grumbling. Grumblers are indifferent or hard toward God and have built a defensive fortress around their heart. They have been hardened by the consequences of the fall and have buried pain down and resentment instead of bringing those to the Lord for Him to redeem. In lamenting, there's a little more openness to God, a little more softness to God. In grumbling, it's like I'm, I'm talking about God, but I'm walking away from Him. In lamenting, I'm bringing everything to God and saying, who are you? Okay? A great example of this is Job in the Old Testament. I know you're familiar with the story, I would imagine, in, in general. But you know the tragedy of the false, and it's not because he did anything wrong. He was a righteous man. He loses all his children, his home, his livestock. It's so painful when his friends see him, they just sit quietly for seven days. And nobody says anything. And then Job thinks, well, I'm safe, so I can tell these friends what I'm really feeling. And he expresses all the disorientation in his heart. And his friends go from good friends to bad friends. Because the next 20 plus chapters, they're going to have an argument where Job says, I have a vertical problem. I don't know who God is anymore. And until he reminds me of who he is, I will have no rest. And his friends say, no, you have a horizontal problem. Your children did this, you did that, you should have done this, you could have done that. They're focused on his behavior, Job is focused on his heart, okay? And you know who the hero is in the story? And I challenge you to read what Job said to God. None of us are that honest with God. But after God comes and prays, I mean, God visits Job and realizes, I want you to realize God answered Job's prayer. God, God doesn't explain to Job why he suffered. He just reminds him that he's really big and strong and Job should trust him. Job was praying. You seem small and ineffectual. Remind me who you are. That's what God does. 
And then he goes to Job's friends and he says, to, I think it's Eliphaz, if you go to Job and he prays for you and restores you, I'll restore you. Because you and your friends have not spoken rightly about me like my servant Job. Job was like, where else can I go? I have to go to the Lord. So lamenting is a movement towards God with some openness, all right? So if you see there, I have lament is there's searching, there's openness, there's confusion, you're asking questions, you're teachable. In grumbling, you're retreating, you're defensive, you've already decided. You're all knowing there's some pride. And I would suggest, suggest this, if you've never lamented and you start practicing, you're probably gonna start out more as a grumbler and move towards a lamenter, because I think the Lord can help you in that process. But I simply say this, lamenters remain receptive to God, but confused about life, which causes them to seek for God and wrestle with Him. Lamenters feel the same thing as a grumbler, but keep bringing them to God while stumbling toward the truth with openness to God's commitment to redeem any human incident. They're praying with the hope that I can't solve this, God, I'm confused, help me. So they're softening, they're stumbling towards change. Like that example I gave you of the young mom whose daughter's being bullied. Like, lamenting's a process where our heart's softening through it. That's why in the Psalm, the Psalm 62 that I taught, there's just a little lament but he's referencing back to these whole psalms that have more lament in them, okay? That they're a period of lament, oftentimes where we're wrestling with God because of something happened in our life, and then as he comforts us, then we have praise, all right? So, um, lamenting is bringing our humanity to God. It's questioning him, complaining to him, and emptying our fleshly nature upon him. I told you about my growing up, how it was mostly nervous, and I just tried to be a really good person. Do you realize there was thousands of incidences where my flesh was saying, try harder, push more, and I agreed with that. Guys, and it says the flesh is hostile to God. It always has been and it always will. If this is, was my fleshly nature at two or three, in my adolescence, my flesh got bigger and Christ in me was down here. As I became a believer and I started changing, this happened. My flesh got mortified or crucified and Jesus in me grew. My lamenting was I was actually praying back. I was acting back out my flesh like I was saying, Lord, I don't understand why my marriage is this way. I tried so hard. Who are you? What are you doing? All those other decisions where I had made to follow my flesh here, I was bringing my flesh to the Lord and saying, please help me with it. Where else can I go but to you? Lamenting is an essential part of surrendering to God and turning over our sin to Him. Lament cuts through insincerity, pretense, and distance and brings us face to face with the Lord. The Lord honors this integrity by giving lamenters more of Himself. Philip Yancey says we go to God looking for answers and what He gives us is more of Himself. So lamenting is a complement of love. Remember how it says, I'd rather you be hot or cold. And I want you to realize something. That happens in the book of Revelation where it says, it says, the problem is you think you're well fed and don't need anything. And that has made you lukewarm. I'd rather you be hot or cold. So then what it says is, 
by gold for me, gold that has been refined by fire. What it means is enter more meaningfully into the trials that are in front of you. By gold for me is there's trials right in front of you. How are you letting them open your heart? Are you letting them surface the things that you've been hiding? And it says the solution to lukewarmness is realizing we're poor, blind, miserable, and naked. You know, that marriage that I wanted, one of joy and rest and beauty, because I had gained so much self-righteousness and pride, it took a long time for me to be able to find rest in my marriage and to be able to really love my wife. And I kept trying in all my effort to love her. My wife, if, um, if you're familiar with this song, I don't know if you were in high school in the 70s or 80s, but girls just want to have fun. It was probably one of my wife's favorite songs. And if there was such a song for me, it would have been, guys just want to be serious. Okay? <laughs> and we had a lot of tension, right? And I kept trying to work out our problems through seriousness. And if anybody reads any of the, like, counseling literature, oftentimes in a marriage you have a distancer and a pursuer, or if you're reading literature today, a anxious and attachment or avoiding attachment, essentially in difficulty, I was anxious and tried to solve things to try to get my wife to talk, and she was withdrawing, withdrawing. so I kind of chased her around, you know, like, trying to get her, and she was like, dude, you just got to relax, okay? But when we finally got to a restful place in our marriage, it wasn't because I had cared real well for my wife, and it wasn't because she had cared real well for it was because we found this. I don't leave you as orphans. I send you the Spirit, and I guide you into truth. Okay? Because I kept bringing everything, all my disorientation, all my fear about our marriage to the Lord. He met me there, and that's where we became friends. And this is no diminishment to my wife. She's obviously a lot more fun than me. <laughs> but the Lord is a much closer friend because I needed him to survive the craziness in the early parts of our marriage, okay? So bottom of page three, it takes practice not to learn to censor our prayer. <clears throat> trying to keep secrets from God is like the three-year-old who covers her eyes and declares, you can't see me. God sees into our hearts more clearly than we do. Indeed, God is the one who prompts us to look at what we have swept under the rug of our oppressions and rationalizations. I want you to realize that you can actually choose one emotion to hide another emotion. Your flesh will entice you through emotions that are not godly. So, if you're disappointed with your spouse, and let's say you're disappointed because, like this may be a good example, because like you're the one who's always cleaning up the dishes, you're more of the doer, right? And so, the spouse said that they were going to clean the dishes when they got home, and they didn't. And then you're angrily cleaning the dishes, and the rest of the night, you don't talk to your spouse. Right? But you know what you don't do? Is you don't say, Lord, why did you put me with this person? <laughs> why did you give me this person who's not a doer and I'm a doer? And see, we acted out sideways by being distant instead of praying it to the Lord and being more honest. And guys, we act out our sin and make choices all day long that we think the Lord's not paying attention to. I mean, pornography is a real problem today. 
you know what we're saying with pornography? You're not pleasing me, God. I'll please myself. Instead of saying, Lord, life is so futile. There's so much pain and difficulty. I feel like I'm suffering more than I should. Why don't you care about me? I promise you that would help us with pornography more than trying harder. I'm not saying don't try. Okay? This is the top of page 37. When I freely show anger to my friend, I also show paradoxically that I believe his love is able to take it. And I cannot be myself with my friend exactly as I am right now, for better or for worse, with whom can I be myself? Beneath my anger, my behavior says this, at least with you, I can reveal myself as I am. Remember how you read C.S. Lewis that God stoops to conquer? I really want to ask you, do you believe the Lord's character is much richer than anything you've experienced here on earth? And we pray, God is glorious, God is holy. In God's holiness, he's humble. You know what it says in Philippians 2, let nothing be done through selfishness and empty conceit. With humility in mind, consider others more important than yourself. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus who didn't regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He humbled himself. Is God glorious and good and holy enough that he can handle your anger? Because if you don't trust him with your jealousy and your anger and the confusing parts of yourself, then the people around you are getting way more of it than they should. Either he's, and remember how I said, how does God experience you? In the beginning, either God's becoming more of a friend where he can handle all of you, or you're becoming too much for the people around you. And I really do want us, I think the more we're finding comfort in God, 2 Corinthians 1, the comfort we give others comes from the comfort we receive from the Lord. As my wife and I grew in our honesty and rest with the Lord, we actually were better able to shoulder each other's burdens. I remember this. It was the very first time we didn't get into the who has the harder life argument, okay? We had young kids, and normally if Ron asked me what my day was like ahead, I would tell her, and she, she wouldn't say it this way. Instead of saying, we think your life is hard, look at mine, she would start saying, oh yeah, I've got this and this and this, and we would start like, who has the harder life, right? So she asked me one day, what my morning, what, what do you got today? And I said, I said, and she said, man, you really have to fight a lot of battles, don't you? That day, I fought those battles with more passion because I felt my wife with me. Right? We learned that there's a whole lot of things we suffer in this world that you can't change, but you can at least be together in those things. And oftentimes there's a real difference between how men and women process difficulty. I want you to know the three main passages to husbands, sacrifice for your wife the way Christ did for the church, love your wife and don't be embittered for her, keep treating your wife with understanding as you live together, treat with understanding, sacrifice, love. All three of those passages say, husbands, you actually have a little bit more to give than you think, be more engaged, okay? And to the wives, it really says that the big words are respect and submit. And really what they mean is, this guy will seem pretty clueless to you, okay? Because he doesn't get relationship the way you do in general. So 
Respect means appreciate. He's going to keep trying. Like, if he's trying, it's not going to look like he's trying that hard, but he actually really is. So appreciate it. And submit means cooperate. Like, work with the dude, okay? So, when I'm doing marital counseling, I say to the husband, because the wife oftentimes initiates the counseling. She's feeling more, more of the stress in the marriage. I partly believe because that she's more vulnerable and the evil one will attack her more, but that's marriage, not what we're talking about. But anyway, she has more difficulty going on. So I'll say to the husband, when she's feeling difficulty, what you do is like, the actual event on the scale of one to 10 is a six, but she's talking about it like it's a nine, so you say it's a four. And she goes, oh, you think it's a four, it's a 12. And he goes, you think it's a 12, it's a zero. And they get divided over the intensity. And the scriptures are saying, husband, come up, treat her with understanding. And so I say, husband, and they're actually sitting right in front of me, and I say, husband, say to your wife, wow, that must be really hard, or really, that makes sense, even though it doesn't feel hard to you, or it doesn't make sense. And I say that to him, just say it. And I started doing this, and I actually started realizing my wife was suffering in a way differently than me. You look at the curse in Genesis, the wife's marriage, the marriage is married, not in the man's curse, but anyway. It was a way, because God had started carrying my burdens, I learned how to carry my wife's burdens. And our lives became lighter because we were trying less hard and accepting more of what was difficult. Do you realize we make our lives harder because we keep trying to make what's hard easy? You are in a fallen world. And even we Christians who have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, grown to be released from pain and suffering, we too are anxiously for that day when God will give us our full rights as his children. When the Holy Spirit comes in you, you realize you're made for ultimate beauty and perfection. Everything in this world falls short. And what we do, even in beautiful moments that are a little bit sad, we don't admit that sadness and we cover it over. And I believe that gives us distance with the Lord. Okay? All right. So, let me, let me summarize the last couple points. We've got a couple minutes and I don't want to run over time. So hopefully, what you're hearing is that if we're more honest with the Lord in our prayer, and if we practice at it, and maybe get a little better, what it's going to do is we're going to actually become less self-righteous. The more we're pushing ourselves to be happy and joyful, and the less we're being happy and joyful because the Lord's really helping us get there, the more self-righteous we're going to be. Okay? The more our faith is as relying on our effort, the less our faith is coming from the Lord changing us. Every good thing happens as a gift. If you've experienced Christian growth, and you can tell me why you've experienced and how you've experienced, it's not Christian growth. Christian growth is mysterious. It comes through submission and trust and faith. So I simply say, at the bottom of page four, Lamenting helps us wake up to the reality of a fallen world. Guys, do you know as believers that when we encounter sin, suffering, and death, we're supposed to come alive in it? I work with people who show up in my office, maybe because there's been an affair. And let's say these are even couples who are wanting to kind of repent and change. Oftentimes they say, everyone has gotten distance from us. Because it's like, if they had an affair, I'd better move away because I might get an affair. Right? We're actually supposed to move into sin. I have people who will come to me because their friend 
has lost their spouse and they're like, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to help them. And I say, you're not supposed to know what to say and you're not supposed to know how to help them. You're supposed to show up and trust the Lord to do something you can't see. But because we're always navigating in ways that we can simply trust and see, we never develop the faith to move into suffering and just be present with people. Sometimes just sitting there is what people need. Right? We're supposed to be formed in a way that we can move towards sin, suffering, and loss, not away from it, okay? So lamenting, the more honest we are to God, the more our hearts are large, and the more we see the reality of a fallen world. And we move from hiding, I believe sin and suffering does this, this is turning into ourselves, and the gospel does this, the Lord is the lifter of our countenance. The good Samaritan, the Pharisee, and the publican, they walk right by the wounded man, the Samaritan moved towards him, okay? He was alive and open in pain and difficulty. And then I say, lamenting helps us develop more of God's heart for the world. Top of page five. Guys, we live in a fallen world. I want to imagine that sometimes the Lord wants to pray through you. It might be what's going on in Ukraine. It might be things that are so opposite of God's goodness and beauty. All the craziness that's happened with sexuality in our culture. Instead of just like shaming and condemning that, do we pray with our hearts where we're groaning that? And saying, Lord, where are you? And show up and do some things that we can't do on our own. The more and more we're connected by the pain in our own life to the Lord, the more we enter into the pain that's in front of us and bring it up to the Lord. I'm going to quote at the top of page five there. It says this. Sometimes our revolt expresses the Father's own revolt rather than human rebellion against him. We think we are accusing him, while in reality he is sorrowly questioning the world through us. As sons and daughters of God, we sometimes give expression to the groanings of the Spirit. The very last thing, and I would say the most important thing, lamenting helps us experience more of God's love. I have a passage from Luke there. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. I believe the process of sanctification, the process of growing closer to the Lord, is a journey in understanding how much the Lord has forgiven you of. Okay? At conversion, when I came to the Lord, I was really filled with a deep love for him. I still had a lot of self-righteous in me. My flesh was as big, and I told you, little by little in marriage, this happened. Well, for years, in the tense moments where I questioned God and complained with Him, what do you think happened when I got to the point where my flesh had really diminished and now I had rest with my life? And now I could look back at all my foolishness. And I could look back and see how the Lord didn't back away from me, even though I was honest with Him, even though I fought with Him. Oh, He kept loving me and helping me, even though I didn't believe He was going to do what He said He was going to do. I challenge you to read Abraham in the Old Testament. In Romans 4, it says God, God says he was absolutely convinced and he never wavered according to the promise. 
And in Galatians it says, the fact that he took in Hagar was mandated to accomplish God's stuff. What we see in Abraham is that he stumbled. He laughed at God, not just his wife. He kept stumbling. There's only two times he shows rich faith. When he leaves Haran, the God of the universe just promised him to make him famous, right? Who wouldn't start off on that journey, right? And then some 33 years later, when he walks Isaac up the mountain, it's the only other time he shows faith in the whole narrative. And it says that Abraham believed God would even raise Isaac from the dead if that's what it was going to take. So when Abraham's walking up the mountain, here's what he's saying. God, I realize now you're more committed to my good than I am. You kept rescuing me. You kept helping me. You kept recovenanting your promise, even though I doubt it. Now I finally believe, after three decades of walking with you, that you're more committed to my good than I am. I'm going to keep walking. You'll provide land, God. You're that kind. Right? If we're more honest along the way with what's in our hearts and we pray them back to the Lord, as we get to new places of growth, we look back and realize how much the Lord has forgiven us of. If we're hiding and pretending and we experience a little good, it doesn't reach into the depths of our soul. Okay? So that's my little thought for today. I'll just say this. My, my hope, my simple hope would be that this morning creates a little room for two things. When you're in difficulty, when you're in tension, that you won't hide as much, that maybe you'll look up and say, count it all joy is not I'm supposed to be happy in the moment. It's an eschatological thing. It's like, I believe you can do some good through this. All right? So count it all joy is let me look and say, Lord, what could you, what stuff could you help me see inside me that I don't want there? What could I turn over to you by lamenting that you die for anyway, Lord? Help me get closer to you through this difficulty. Don't let me deny it or turn away from it. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for us today. Lamenting is a paradoxical thing. We know you love us, Lord. And we know that you use the pain of this world to help us become more like you. It doesn't mean that that's not painful. It doesn't mean that you don't want to meet us there and help us with our doubt and confusion. I just pray, Lord, in whatever way your spirit was speaking this morning, that you would help us to remember that, Lord, and feed on it and follow it. May your will be done in our hearts, Lord Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.